welcome to the Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis, and my co-host, Claudia Amos, who is the Technical Director for Circular Economy Resource Efficiency at Anthesis. If you've joined us in previous episodes, you'll know that we're co-hosting a short series of podcasts that uses informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sector through lenses of the women like us. We're inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we're delighted to have Lisa Newberger with us. Lisa is a serial entrepreneur and has published a book, so we're excited to talk to her about that, and we're really delighted to have her with us today. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into any discussion, perhaps we could give you an opportunity just to quickly introduce yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It is a delight to be with you ladies today. My name is Lisa Newberger Fernandez, and at 374 Water, I'm our global head of sustainability and ecosystems. I've recently joined 374 Water after nearly 24 years with Accenture, where I built a career in sustainability and strategy development over that period of time. And over COVID, I wrote a book with two co-founders of uh, the DC Thrive Group, and we'll get into that in a minute. But that, that adds another layer of color to my story. Fantastic. Shall we start with your current role at uh, 374 Water and tell us a bit more about the name, the company, and really what its objectives are? Yes, absolutely. 374 Water is a U.S.-based clean tech and social impact company. Our mission is to preserve a clean and healthy environment that sustains life. And our purpose is twofold. On the one hand, to develop sustainable and efficient waste management. And on the other hand, to detox the planet. When we develop sustainable waste management, we look for all the different efficient ways to roll out our our technology. Our technology is linked to the name of the company. You may be wondering, what does 374 Water mean? Why, why the number? So when you reach 374 Celsius, water turns into this fourth state that is called supercritical. It is no longer a gas, it is no longer a liquid, and it is no longer a solid. It reaches the supercritical conditions. And when water is at the supercritical condition, um, very hot, 374 Celsius, also under tremendous amount of pressure, uh, water becomes a solvent. And in that state, water can cut through any organic material. So this has a really fantastic application in the waste sector because water is able to essentially disintegrate any organic material. That includes all the different toxins. So when we talk about detoxing the planet, what we mean is that waste that runs through our system goes back into its component parts. So if you have toxins, whether that's PFAS or whether that's microplastics or other dioxins and toxins, the molecules essentially come back to their original form. So they go back to carbon to oxygen, nitrogen, etc., and remove the toxins from the original materials. That's the magic of 374, supercritical water. 
I love that we keep bringing chemistry into this. We've done other podcasts on the links between waste and chemistry. And I feel like when we sit on these conversations, quite often I'm sitting here thinking, nodding along, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm learning things. Every day is a school day when we do these uh, podcast conversations. And I think this is a really great example of, you know, that fusion of circular economy with some of the other disciplines. And when we talk to people about career pathways, it just demonstrates the breadth of different backgrounds and expertise that we need to make this circular economy model work globally. Yeah, and also really clear explanations, isn't it? I think sometimes I think, Donna, thank you so much for that, because that was a really nice, clear explanation of what supercritical water is. Because I think often we use these terms and terminologies and people don't really know what's behind it. So I think that that's really great. And can I just follow up on, so why are PFAS such an important issue, especially in the US and Europe? And there are a number of technologies already using these super critical water approach and a couple of other approaches to try to reduce contamination. But what is driving the marketplace today? Could you give us a bit more of an overview? Yes, I'll talk about the market drivers. And just to pick up on what you just said, you know, the simplicity of the answer, one of the things that has really captivated me in, in joining 374 Water is the chance to learn and, you know, go in depth in areas that are not my expertise. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. You know, I'm a businesswoman, a, a strategist, a visionary, an in, innovator, et cetera. And it's been so refreshing and so exciting to, to join a company and to kind of open the door to these new uh, sectors for me and, you know, and my outlook in terms of waste and water and, and chemistry and engineering and learning how to manufacture hard tech. Uh, my career at Accenture was really about digital tech and, you know, AI, blockchain, smart technologies, and now to be in a company that's manufacturing a, a machine to clean toxic water and waste, you know, that's really new and, and exciting. So PFAS is a, is a big topic these days. You can barely open a newspaper, particularly in the United States or the UK, without seeing a reference to forever chemicals. And PFAS is one of thousands of chemicals deemed forever chemicals because of this double-edged sword that they have. These are chemicals with the letters like PFAS, PFOS, PFOA. There's thousands of these different combinations. And these forever chemicals have the dual property of, on the one hand, being exceptional at what they do. They have a really strong carbon and fluorine bond, which allows them to withstand incredible pressure, temperature, fire, um, grease, water resistant. They're resistant to, to so much um, on the other hand, the double-edged sword is that because so, these bonds are so strong, they don't easily dissipate in nature. They don't easily dissipate in our bodies, in an animal, in the soil, in the water, etc. So the thing that makes these chemicals uh, properties so excellent in, in doing their job is also the thing that ultimately um, is, is being shown to be harmful to people, to animals, to our, to our ecosystems. And so the market drivers are essentially, on the one hand, uh, increased awareness from consumers of these forever chemicals. Uh, what's driving that awareness? Really two things. One is the increase in regulatory action. For example, the US EPA is starting to regulate the PFAS levels in water in the United States. On the other hand, you're seeing more and more litigation where companies that have created these chemicals since approximately the 1940s are being, you know, there's all kinds of litigation, and particularly in the United States these days, and you're, you're reading about settlements that are coming through big, you know, eye-popping eye numbers. So 
These are some of the market drivers that drive demand for ways to either clean up the mess of PFAS and forever chemicals or to create alternatives to these chemicals that have these issues. And you have an operational plant at the moment. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So our first customer is Orange County Sanitation District. This is a tremendous first customer, pioneering customer um, for us because the regulatory environment in California is so strong. And the organization is led by a really visionary leader who is extremely interested in experimenting with novel technologies and find new applications for supercritical water oxidation, et cetera. And we are currently manufacturing this first unit for deployment at Orange County Sanitation District at our partner facility in uh, Indiana. And this is, you know, I've been out to visit the facilities. It's, you know, it's an incredible place in Indiana, you know, outside of Indianapolis in the middle of cornfields. And there you see this manufacturing plant really in in the middle of the cornfields, a very sophisticated place. I love that you describe the leader of the Orange County uh, program as a visionary leader. Everything you've just described about yourself actually makes me think you're a very inspiring leader in the career journey that you've talked through just in this very short and succinct way, I think is, is fascinating. I'd like to turn to the book that you've authored, actually, because I've done a lot of interviews with female entrepreneurs, and they always seem to have this tension that people draw on uh, between the work life or the work family balance. And We've also had people who've who've referred to sort of discrimination in their uh, workplaces or in the sort of leadership opportunities that they've been offered. So I think it'd be really interesting to share a little bit of the knowledge that came from the process during your research and so on for that book. So uh, the book is called Rebalance and Thrive, and it's connected, as you mentioned in your introduction, to a network that you run. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the findings and how you came to be writing it and how you came to be connected to the network. Yes. So our book is called Rebalance, How Women Lead, Parent, Partner, and Thrive. And as I learned writing this first book, it's actually much harder to find the title to a book and a cover image to a book, if you can believe that, than to write the book. It took us about a year end to end from the moment that we thought, let's write a book together to the moment that our manuscript was locked. And then it took another six months to figure out what, you know, what to, what to name it. So it, this is a, a difficult thing to do just for any um, budding book writers out there. So how did this book come about? Well, in 2020, when COVID, the lockdowns, you know, started, I was on a walk with two other women who were the co-founders with me of this group called Thrive DC that we had started 10 years earlier. And we realized that there was going to be a little bit more time to reflect as the world seemed to be coming to a sudden halt. And, you know, one of the only things we could do together was take walks, walk and talks outside. That's something that we love to do. And Thrive DC was created to create a space for a group of dozen women who were looking to get ahead in their careers. But these were also moms in purpose-driven fields. And we were all like eager to find a way to find some semblance of, of balance in our lives. And so we met once a month for, for lunch throughout those 10 years. And when Monica and Wendy and I were, were walking along in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. And, you know, in March of 2020, we thought there's so much wisdom that's stored up in all these lunches and in all these walks and all these conversations with these really uh, exceptional women. What if we could put, you know, pen to paper and categorize some of that? So that's essentially what we um, set out to do. 
And it turned out that this was our COVID project that really helped us get through COVID because for that entire first year, every Saturday we would walk for two hours and became virtual because at some point my family and I, we moved to Florida, we left DC. So we were doing these virtual walk and talks and that process of really reflecting on what did we learn? What, what is that? What are those, you know, pearls of wisdom that we can share and, and bringing that into a forum and doing it together was really wonderful thing that certainly got me through, <laughs> through COVID. The book has a central metaphor, which is the wheel. And the wheel has two sides to it, kind of two images. On the one hand, the, the concept is about taking the wheel of your own journey, taking the steering wheel of your life and your career and being that actor who's really driving the wheel. And that's a core theme that we, you know, we talk about and we, we share and, and how can any of us really take that point of view, that mindset about taking control of our own destiny and the second uh, metaphor of the wheel is like the wheel of life. If you think of a circle that you divide up into as many pie slices as there are important areas in your life that you want to work through, and the, the wheel in that sense gives you a prioritization tool. And so in our conversations with Wendy and Monica and myself, we tended to organize our own um, journeys around four key areas, four key pie slices, and those became the four sections of the book. And they are not surprising when you think about how uh, I've described this group. One of the sections is about work, purpose-driven work, and how to you know, evolve one's career and get ahead in one's career. Second area is about health, both mental health, physical health, and how to kind of create that new normal for us so that as we age, you know, we age gracefully and, and we don't see a, a steep decline. That's one of those things that often think about, you know, what are the things that we can do now to like raise our level of, of health and stability and, and that, that foundation, um, the strength, so that we have a really strong foundation, whether it's, you know, Pilates, meditation, deep breathing, walking, like how, how do we raise our our health level and don't, um, you know, f fall into the sense that at a certain age, we will just be in decline. We don't believe that. <laughs> the, the third area is about family and relationships with kids, with partners, with parents. You know, many of us have aging parents. We have kids, you know, there are many responsibilities on our time and we fundamentally want all of us in our families to be thriving and what are the lessons in there, um, such as being present and, and we can come back to some of those. And then the fourth area was about community and community action. And this group of women all have different ways that we want to give back to, to the communities that we live in, whether in our immediate communities, like in our neighborhoods, or, or more broadly as we get into global action areas. So it gives you a, a high level overview of, kind of what's tackled in the book. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I'm kind of like three quarters away through, so I'm slightly behind uh, Debbie. But one thing I loved right at the start was the focus on curiosity, which was completely reflected by saying that I'm not an engineer and I'm not an engineer either, but I always had a real cu curiosity how production processes work. How does it work was just a key question. So I think that's a brilliant way to approach life, to really get a deep understanding and figure out how does it actually work? What does it actually mean? I think a very good question. And the other part was the authenticity and the purpose, the driven aspect. I thought that was really, really good. And I think that's really a key question. 
And just yesterday, I heard uh, another podcast about um, the rise of mental health problems and and depression and other issues. And one explanation is kind of like the way we are wired is that we need meaningful connections. So I think that's your community aspect to a certain degree, that while we're all linked via virtual screens and anything, but the physical meaningful connection was still getting lost during COVID and has to a certain degree not be reestablished with a lot of people or they find it difficult because there was such a long time where these type of connections were lost. So I really thought that was that was really good. I think one of the things writing those books and especially where you had this kind of like this long relationship before we said you we've met ten years before, we have been talking anything. Is there anything that you discovered that really surprised you in the research and the interviews you undertook? And uh, is there anything where you think and had never really thought about in a certain way? So two things come to mind that came out through reflecting on our stories and, and through telling these stories as, as we went along. So one topic is about giving ourselves permission to take that next step in our career. And this was a theme that, that came up through through many different conversations. In my case, um, I remember the day that I received at a women's leadership conference, the book called Lean In. And when I received it, I remember feeling like, oh, I'm not ready for any of that. And I kind of took it home, put it up on a bookshelf and, you know, just let it let it sit there. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not ready to go for that next big promotion. And then one day, probably a year or two later, I did want to go for that big promotion. And I felt this like switch that flipped for me. And I felt that kind of openness to, to learning about how, how am I going to do that? And so I remember, you know, flipping through the book and seeing that there were some really practical advice in there that you could come from that book or could come from a conversation with with other other people about you know finding a mentor sitting at the table asking for things and this really activated this idea of taking the steering wheel of your career and i remember starting to you know sending meeting invites uh, to the you know the people i was reporting to in you know in my organization that was called like you know the path to md being very clear and really asking for it because if you ask for it you may not get it but if you don't ask for it you're most likely not not going to get it so that was one of these insights that came up and that is you know interesting to share and that came up from many different women in the group who wanted to take their careers to become a, a judge, a federal judge, to, to move ahead in the in the U.S. government. You know, there's different stories. And at first, the feeling was like, well, no, I'm not ready for that. I'm not interested in that. But at some point, the switch turned and then it was like, okay, so how, how do I do it? I think you also made a really good comment in the book in saying that people, women always feel they need to deserve it or be deserving. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of like thought and that really resonated that a lot of people are waiting to be good enough to deserve and be given uh, instead of asking for it. And I think that's a really good switch to make to be active and say, you know, I think I can do this and I want the chance to grow and not just wait until I've done a fill the position 110% and then be, be deserving of it because by the time you figure that out, everybody else has surpassed you. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've read somewhere that when women see job descriptions, oftentimes they read it very carefully. And if there's several points in there that, that you haven't done in your past career, then women might think I'm not going to apply for this because I didn't do those things. And you know, 
men might have a really different response to that and, you know, just go for it. Along these lines, one of the titles that we considered for a book at, at a, a point was called uh, Permission to Thrive. And that really encapsulates this notion. It's like, give yourself the permission to thrive. Give yourself permission to, you know, to go for it. Whatever is your dream, whatever is that, that next thing. Because sometimes we're the ones who are holding ourselves back. I love that permission to thrive. I think that's really, really valuable. And I think you picked up on something else, which is you've got to be ready to take that next step because a lot of this stuff requires self-reflection and that can be sometimes uncomfortable. You need to be in the right sort of place for that. And as you say, you put it on the shelf and came back to it. I had a similar experience when somebody recommended to me that I should explore Brené Brown's The Power of Vulnerability. I don't want to be vulnerable. Why would I want to show a vulnerable side in business? You know, that doesn't sound like leadership. But the more I mulled it over, the more I realised actually, maybe there was something in it. And I'm a massive advocate. I think I've now got three or four of her books. Uh, and I often recommend Brené Brown to colleagues who I'm coaching. But having said that, I also recently recommended your book to a colleague that I'm mentoring, because she was grappling very much with this sort of balancing act that we've been describing. And, and that issue of maybe that waiting for somebody else to give permission to move on to the next, next part of her career. And, and that resonates with me, because I've looked back at points in my career and thought, gosh, yeah, I was a passenger in my career at that point. So the idea of taking the steering wheel and sort of driving decisions really sort of connected with me. So I guess we should ask you to tell anyone who's listening to this who might find this uh, book useful and influential in their lives, where can they get a copy? Oh, yes. The book is readily available on Amazon in pretty much any country. And if you search in Amazon for our name, Rebalance, How Women Lead, Parent, Partner, and Thrive, you will find it. In addition to searching for the book on Amazon, you can also come to our website, which is rebalancetothrive.com. I just wanted to reflect also on your experience of picking a title. I don't know if you know, but the CEO of Anthesis wrote a book with a colleague from the business and had a similar problem to you, I think, in terms of picking a title that was short and succinct. They settled for the adventure of sustainable performance beyond ESG compliance to leadership in the new era. So I was wondering which one of those books had more words in its title. Both worth reading, I should add. A bit of competition here. How many words can you stick into a title? <laughs> it's hard. It's really, it's surprisingly hard to get a, you know, th- that one word like nudge or um, think or, you know. I think the third aspect, which you know, made us really interesting in uh, having you on the podcast, is also your serial entrepreneurship. So the different business and different areas. So I would love to kind of like understand how did you embark on that type of career, even with you know, with one company, but I think there are different ventures, different sides. And then how got, did you get into sustainability and also inclusivity? Yeah, great question. So in terms of how I got into sustainability, it's a great story. It was the late 2000s. I was living in the Bay Area, newly married, and we were thinking about having kids. And one thing stood out for me, which was the doubt as to what were the toxins in my household and what could I do to get rid of toxins in my household. And this like propelled me um, to go and find my friend who seemed to be the most knowledgeable about this topic, she gave me a list of household products to to avoid and ones to to pick. But then she asked me this, you know, the million dollar question, would you like to enter your company into the net impact green challenge? And that was this great 
um, turning point in my career at the time. So we entered, we found about 75 volunteers who were interested in, in shaping um, our company's sustainability strategy at, you know, in around the year 2007, which was kind of early for professional services firms. And when we won first prize in that competition as a company, we started to receive inbound questions from potential clients. You know, how are you greening Accenture? What are the steps that you're taking? And that really um, catapulted me into finding you know, and asking for new new roles and creating new roles in, in the company around creating a like a green team in the United States and creating a, a business development function in our newly formed sustainability consulting practice. And then from there, you know, the, the rest is history. I eventually moved into our own corporate sustainability teams and spent 14 years uh, really shaping and, and building sustainability innovation programs and platforms uh, for the company and uh, kind of switched the frame from being the innovator myself, like launching new programs to creating a platform where we can enable, you know, many hundreds and thousands of, of employees to build out um, their own uh, innovation platforms through programs like S Social Innovators and the uh, sustainability innovation challenges that, that we ran at the company. And then, you know, coming full circle on the toxins topic, then one of the CEOs who, who had come into the sustainability innovation challenge in, in one of our groups on the future of net positive water was indeed the CEO of 374 Water. And when we started talking about what was next in my career, the, this opportunity opened up and he was really supportive of how much of a great networker and innovator that I am and how to bring this type of action to, to 374 Water. So this desire to rid toxins, to detox the planet, to detox my house kind of comes comes full circle. And one of the aspects of my job, which I really love, is the ecosystem side. And on the ecosystem side, we've created a platform called Sustainable Futures. And in Sustainable Futures, this is a platform for pioneers who are working on the front lines of clean water, waste, energy, the circular economy to come together, to learn together and to tackle big challenges. And you'll see there's lots of events and webinars and virtual events on our on our website that's for Sustainable Futures. And our first big challenge to tackle is about PFAS and forever chemicals. What's the future of PFAS that we want to see. And that's you know, a big topic that we're exploring with a cross-sector group of a brain trust international group of people who are on the front lines of trying to tackle these questions. How do we cease production of the materials? How do we clean up the mess? How do we find alternatives and drive consumer adoption of those alternatives? Fabulous. That sounds sounds really good. And I think it must have been quite a shift from Donna Accenture to, to a small startup. Yes, I've been so energized by making this big shift. Uh, I didn't know how I would feel having spent nearly 25 years in, in a big company. And, and before that, all my internships had been in large companies, like large organizations like the OECD or Reuters or other, other big, big companies, um, always being the innovator on the inside, like the social entrepreneur. And, and I've found it so refreshing and exciting to be now in a smaller company. There are about 40 people at 374 Water at the moment. And it's so energizing to be able to create new platforms and to you know build ecosystems that were, did not exist before. Um, things move much faster in, in a small company. It really, speed is of the essence. And it's been exciting to see how to apply you know, skills and lessons that I've learned from years in a large company, but to, to build strong foundations in, in a smaller company. So stay tuned, but I find it very exciting. 
I think that's really resonates because again, because there's a podcast that we did some time ago with one of our colleagues, a lady called Emma Hampsey, who's an Anthesian, and she was talking about sort of career development and early career journey planning, particularly. And it, it remains today one of the most popular sessions that we recorded. And I'd like to think that some of the rich career experiences that you've had will help to inspire people who listen to this to look at the variety of different ways you can get into sustainability or into circular economy, to look at the enormous breadth of skills and opportunities that there are, and to loop this back to, you know, the confidence that you were talking about in your book to take that first step and to have the the power to drive your own career and your own destiny. So I think hopefully there's a, a lot that people will be able to take from this in terms of shaping and developing their own career pathways. Thank you so much for sharing your experience so openly with us, Lisa, on all different fronts. Super interesting. And it was wonderful to hear about your own career journey, your thoughts around it, and and coming back to the theme of asking for things, being curious and authentic. And I think all the other inspirational women you have been working with, I think that's a really strong factor as well, building a community. We wish 3-7 for Water all the best, and uh, we would love to... To hear more about it over the coming months, I guess, on all the different platforms. And as always, if you'd like to know more about anything we have discussed in this podcast, or if you have a topic or issues that you'd like us to profile, please get in touch with us via the Anthesis website or LinkedIn. And thanks again, Lisa, for joining us. And goodbye. Mm-hmm.